A. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Asian stock futures are mixed before data due out uh, on Chinese economic growth. China stock, the China stock jump blows up bond yields in a threat to PBOC stimulus. And oil extends its climb for a fifth day after Iran called on OPEC to tackle the global glut by cutting output. Hong Kong markets are taking a bit of a breather and investors continue to question whether the U.S. economy has peaked. We'll ask our markets guest about this uh, uh, this morning, and that's uh, Matthews International Capital's Robert Horrocks. Then we'll focus in on the wisdom of automated investment advice. Stay tuned as EY's Jaron Bualda tells us more. And of course, City Trust Chairman Stuart Aldcroft is our regular Wednesday co-host. Welcome back, Stuart. Good morning, Anita. So, Stuart, China's world-beating stock surge is sucking money away from bonds and even thwarting central bank efforts to cut uh, borrowing costs to support the economy. Why are investors shifting assets? They see better returns. <laughs> it's very simple. I think uh, I, I don't know whether they are taking so much money out of the bond market, although that has uh, clearly been one source. But there's an enormous amount of cash sitting around in banks in China, too. Uh, and that is uh, clearly some of the money that's going into the equity market right now. Absolutely. Local stocks have retreated after a 14% rise over the past eight trading days, while the market in Shanghai continues to creep higher. Altus Wang reports. The Hang Seng Index fell 1.6% or 454 points to close at 27,561. Market turnover was $237.5 billion. Leading the market's lower was 10 cents after its chief executive sold part of his stake in the social networking and online entertainment firm. The company's shares tumbled 5.5% in its biggest single-day drop in nearly a year. They closed at $161.00 and 20 cents. Although the sale triggered profit-taking, many investors believe the recent bull run is not over. Morgan Stanley now predicts the Hang Seng Index will hit 30,000 within the next 12 months, up from its previous forecast of 26,800, citing a spillover of bullish sentiment from the mainland. Shares in Shanghai fought to sustain yet another seven-year record close. The composite index ended at 4,135, up one-third of a percent. 30,000. Do you buy that, Stuart? Um, yes, actually. I think there's quite a possibility. It's, uh, it, um, let's face it, it's only a number and it's only a little bit more than 10% from where we are today. Uh, but the market is on a bull run. Uh, 
and there's a lot of money coming into the market, as as has been seen by various announcements. So it's not a great deal. Mm. The, the Hang Seng China Index has climbed 22% this year, and the Shanghai Composite has also climbed to a seven-year high in response to this uh, frenzy of stock purchases by Chinese investors as the government eases monetary policy to counter a slowdown. Now, here's uh, Michael Holland, chairman of Holland & Company. Chinese investors are really smart. They're really fast. They haven't been investing in property recently because property stopped going up. So what have they done? They said, we can front run the mutual funds. I'm on the board of one of these. I can tell you from personal experience. They're, they're gearing up to get involved in the Hong Kong, Shanghai thing. They haven't been able to. They, they have some right. regulatory things to do. So this is that the wrong? 19, 1960s in, in, in the U.S. Is, is it wrong? It's just, no, it's, it's, what it's, it's what's going on. Stuart, what does he mean by that when he says it's like the 1960s in the U.S.? Um, well, I, I don't know. Maybe he's, he was there at the same time. <laughs> but, but I guess that what he's saying is that, you know, a lot of new people are coming into the stock market. The market's going up quite strongly. It's a bull market situation. Um, but, you know, we've talked about this in the last uh, couple of months while I've been on, on this show uh, about the fact that a lot of the Hong Kong listed China stocks were trading at a very big discount mm. to their A shares. And a lot of that discount discount will have gone through the very heavy buying of the last few weeks. Uh, and and that's, that is a very normal market situation, which was not being uh, run for quite a long time. Now we've seen uh, the scope for it to happen, because in China, there have been a few new mutual funds with the Hong Kong focus, and, and there's a lot of money pouring into them. All right. Well, in the U.S., J.P. Morgan's first quarter GDP climbed 12% on rising revenue from fixed income trade. Income increased to $5.9 billion. Here's Michael Holland on the numbers. Excellent number. And, and I think in a kind of a not particularly enthusiastic market today, I think the stock will be one of the best traders. The backdrop for producing this kind of result and it really throughout the business you know the investment banking was good um, you know all of the businesses they got rid of their commodities trading and yet the fixed in, the, the trading business was up five uh, percent you take out the, the other it's up 20 these are great numbers uh, Jamie Dimon and his team continued to produce the, the, the great numbers in a difficult environment. and the legal expenses were, were showing a little sign of, of receding a bit and okay. these huge expenses and that's been one of the things that makes this stock so cheap people have said with these legal problems or regulatory problems why would you pay up for it? Well, it's trading at a discount, not only to the market, but to the other big banks. So how does this compare to other banks that released earnings? Wells Fargo edged lower after the firm posted earnings of $1.04 per share, which is six cents above estimates, with revenue also above forecasts. The, the report... Um, did break an 18-quarter streak of higher year-over-year earnings as the bank deals with the impact of lower rates, which have pushed first-quarter lending margins below 3% for the first time since the 1990s. But one bright spot for Wells Fargo is mortgage and originations. Here's John Shrewsbury, the CFO. Mortgage originations are about 10% of our, of our overall revenue. We have about $20 billion per quarter uh, in revenue half from interest, half from different fee streams, and a portion of that is mortgage. We're thrilled that the first quarter was very strong. Rates rallied, and that brought some more people into refinance, and people are still purchasing homes, and we're getting into that part of the year. Uh, but there's a lot of other uh, drivers running, driving the business, and I thought that you might uh, have been referring to deposit and loan growth at 9 and 7%, because year over year, those are real bright spots for the firm as well.
So U.S. stocks uh, closed mixed as investors digested the first of the major earnings reports and moderate economic data. Uh, let's see. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at 18,036. The S&P 500 closed at 2,095. Both of them were up. But the Nasdaq fell two-tenths of a percent to 4,977, even though Intel posted steady first quarter sales and an increase in net income. So uh, the question that uh, investors are asking is whether the strong dollar is taking investors out of the U.S. economy. Goldman Sachs has a new model that quantifies not just dollar strength, but also the oil shock, the inevitable rise in interest rates and the bull market in stocks. Here's chief economist uh, Jan Hatzius talking about the outlook for the months ahead. The first quarter was certainly disappointing. I mean, we're, we're at 1% after the retail sales numbers this morning. We, we do think, though, that this weakness is probably going to be uh, temporary. We, we're looking for a pretty strong rebound in the second quarter because uh, some of the weakness is actually somewhat inconsistent with, with, with other signals. The surveys are generally pointing uh, a less bad picture than the, than the GDP numbers, and there probably was some weather impact in the, in the first quarter. So we're, we're looking for sort of 3.5% in the, in the second quarter, uh, and then uh, beyond that, sort of 25 to 3 uh, over the next couple of years is, uh, is, is where we are. That is clearly above the trend, uh, trends probably in the, in the low twos. Uh, so it should mean more, uh, more labor market improvement uh, and eventually also Fed tightening, although we don't really see the urgency on, uh, on, on why the Fed needs to get off of zero anytime soon. So let's bring in our first guest this morning, Matthews International Capital Management's Chief Investment Officer, Robert Horrocks, who's been a portfolio manager of Matthews Asian Growth and Income Fund since 2009. Good morning, Robert. Morning. So, uh, Robert, what do you uh, sort of make of uh, this issue of the U.S. economy? Do you think it's peaked or do you sort of agree with uh, Jan Hatzius, perhaps? I'd hate to disagree with Jan. Uh, um, the way I look at it, though, is there's been a lot of talk uh, about the Fed raising rates. When your policy rate is at zero, uh, just talking about uh, raising rates is, in effect, uh, a tightening of policy. So monetary policy has been tightening since May 2013, by um, by my view. And I'm not surprised that you're seeing weak numbers coming out of the U.S. now. And I don't think there's any need to, to push rates up. If the U.S. is worried, though, about interest rates, um, it's only going to be a quarter percent or a half percent over any period of time. So it's really not a great big increase, is it? Uh, it's not the size of the increase, but it's the signaling the principle. that it, it, it mm. puts out to the market. Now, I, what worries me is there's a lot of talk about low interest rates creating a fake mm. kind of economy or a fake market, which I, I think is, uh, is way overdone. And the Swedes, when they raised rates too early for that very reason, to try mm. and control financial instability, mm. they, they pushed the economy into deflation and they had to reverse course pretty quickly. There are a few economists that are talking about a, an, a QE4, as it <clears> were. Uh, do you believe that? Do you think the U.S. will do it in, in what will ultimately become an election year next year? I see no reason why they shouldn't. If you look mm. at uh, policy in terms of the potential risks, doing too much easing right now is much less risky than doing too much tightening. Mm. So the impact will be what? 
more money into the system, improved returns on stocks? I think uh, I think you should be trying to push that uh, inflation rate up to your target, which is supposed to be around 2%. Yeah. Um, and I think it would underwrite a little bit of the improvements in the labour market, and probably decent for stocks, yeah. although prices are quite high in the US. Robert, uh, you know, from a US perspective, how do investors look uh, at the Asian markets? Do they mm. feel like they're missing out? Um, it, it really depends. There's, there's a lot of people in the U.S. that still treat Asia as as peripheral, somehow a, a derivative of what's happening uh, to Fed policy. And, and for the most part, they'll they'll take short-term views and, and, and use the ETFs to trade. But I would say increasingly since since the crisis, there have been more people willing to to have a core investment in in Asia. That's changed, uh, and uh, although it's it's still somewhat on the margin. Um, I don't think those people feel that they're missing out at the moment because the S&P has been uh, outperforming Asia. But uh, Mm. I I think there's more and more people willing to take a strategic view on Asia. But is it true that by and large, you know, the the, the average uh, U.S. investor, I mean, you say they're certainly increasing uh, perhaps their presence in the Asian markets, maybe through the ETFs, but they don't really know the difference, let's say, between Alibaba and Tencent. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, you know, if you want to sort of quantify uh, the level of commitment that the U.S. investor has to the region, I think if you look at the Fed numbers on the percentage holdings of Chinese and Hong Kong stocks combined, for example, mm. as, a, as a percentage of total foreign equities, it's less than 3%. Mm. Um, so their overall commitment to Asia uh, and actually to the rest of the world has, has long been uh, what I would describe as below optimal. But you know, I think it will increase over time. So, um, you know, speaking of Tencent, what do you make of Tencent's uh, chief executive, Pony Ma, cashing in uh, three billion Hong Kong dollars worth of his stake in the company? Well, you know, you need to you need to look at these a little bit uh, um, um, carefully. Actually, if you if you you, you don't know the personal circumstances. Obviously, you want to be invested in companies where the, uh, the chief decision makers are, are aligned with you. Often, actually, it's a positive sign if people are just selling a tiny bit of their uh, of their holding because it really means that they've maybe got something personal they want to spend the money on and they're, they're reluctant to sell too much. So I, I wouldn't make too much of it. Okay. And when you say it's a positive sign, just to clarify for our listeners... What exactly does that mean? Well, if you're selling some of your stake in a business, if you think about it from the individual's point of view, if you're selling a large chunk of your stake, it tells you that you're negative on the business. Mm. If you're telling us selling a small chunk of your stake, it could be that you want to buy a yacht or a castle or something like or, that. Or may even pay, <laughs> pay your tax. Or may even pay your tax. <laughs> but you're reluctant to sell, uh, sell out a big stake. So mm. it's very difficult to draw um, definitive conclusions from actions like that. So, uh, Robert, you know, with the run-up to the U.S. election, over the course of the next year. How do you see the different contenders sort of shaping the U.S. markets and and how is that going to filter down to us here? (laughs) Honestly, I try not to think about it. It's it's rather depressing. I I think if you're looking at, you know, uh, global political uh, events, I think the U.S. is probably the least interesting place at the moment. In fact, one of the things that uh, always uh, strikes me about Asia right now is the commitment to reform of the economies. Uh, in China, you have a reformist government. In Japan, in Korea, in Indonesia, the commitment across the region to try and uh, find ways of improving the institutions around the capital markets, improving the efficiencies of, uh, of the economy so they work better for their citizens is way beyond any commitment that is being made 
in the in Europe or the US, where it's all about um, income redistribution. Stuart, so, do you agree? Yeah, um, <clears throat> yes, uh, I mean, of course, we hear a lot of noise about the US political situation, and uh, and it is going to be uh, an event that impacts the rest of the world. But Asia is now ploughing its own furrow, and and I think we're seeing um, a lot more strength in the Asian markets. You know, we we're seeing stability in Asia across most governments uh, for quite long periods of time, which is very unusual in my view. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm quite interested in from Robert's perspective, you know, he, he's sitting in California most of the time, although today in, in, in Hong Kong. Um, Lucky guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, from there, you must see Asia with a very different set of eyes from those of us that live here. I, I think may, <clears throat> maybe we do, at least the way that we try to think about it is we try and imagine what Asia is going to look like a decade, two decades down the line, mm -hmm. how families are going to be living their, their lives and, and try and take a, a sort of longer term, more dispassionate so, view. So you don't get involved by the daily noise so much, is that it? Uh, that, that's the idea. I mean, uh, there is some evidence uh, from research that psychopaths make really good fund <laughs> managers. Yes, so well. you have two choices. You can either <laughs> hire a bunch of psychopaths or you can put people in a single location somewhat removed from the market so that you can really take that. So you're looking for a few CVs view. from the psychopath I, You know, I'm, I'll take your CV any time. Yeah. <laughs> Revealing all the trade secrets this morning. Come on, you, you told me you wouldn't say that. <laughs> all right, Robert, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Very, very interesting stuff indeed. That is Robert Horrocks. And he is a Chief Investment Officer at Matthews International Capital. A quick look at uh, the numbers. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent this morning to 19,849. Australia's ASX index is up 0.16% to 5,925. And Seoul's Kospi is up uh, one-tenth of a percent to 2,114. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.06 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 119 yen. And one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 44 cents and also uh, 1.4 US dollars. Whenever an ambulance is called to a critical case, our prompt judgment can save lives. We have to use the correct treatment protocol for every different emergency. But the most important decision is whether you make the right judgment in calling for the emergency ambulance service. Your sensible decision can help us save lives. Please, don't misuse the ambulance service. The time is 8.21 a.m. And uh, the question is, are you okay with robots managing your portfolio? And if you're not, does that uh, just put things down to uh, old-fashioned mentality or just a good dose of healthy skepticism? Well, U.S. investment company uh, Charles Schwab has launched its intelligent portfolio services in mid-March. And an automate and uh, apparently automated investment advice is said to be going mainstream. So this morning, we have uh, EY's Asia-Pacific Wealth and Asset Management Advisory Leader, Jerome uh, Bualda, joining us for more. Good morning, Jerome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for joining us uh, to talk about a very, uh, very intriguing uh, 
you know, uh, topic here. What exactly is a robo-advisor? Yeah, great question. And there's a lot of uh, different shapes and sizes out there. So uh, we, uh, we think a robo distinguishes itself from all the other, other tools in the market uh, on three dimensions. It, it, it optimizes, it recommends, and it implements um, a portfolio for, uh, for clients. But, uh, I mean, a robot? I mean, can we, <laughs> can we actually trust someone who uh, doesn't think uh, in uh, the traditional sense? Yeah, good question. I think um, uh, the um, uh, robots have um, uh, financial planning in generally, I think, is broader than just investment advice. People, uh, most people mm. uh, need financial advice. They, uh, we, we see it similar to other lifestyle goals like uh, losing weight or, uh, or giving up smoking. And uh, what we believe is that um, a robo-advice can bring the complexities of, uh, of our industry down to things that people can understand and, and act, uh, act upon. So, yeah, l let's dig into that a little bit more because, you know, uh, one of the things you mentioned is the Fitbit story. And as you can see, I have my Fitbit. I don't go anywhere without it, uh, counting the steps and everything. And, you know, you're right in saying that, you know, this is an example of a device which just has allowed people to change their lives. How does robo-advisory do the same thing for financial well-being? Yeah, the, look, uh, the end client at the end of the day uh, is, is not really um, just interested in, in making money. They, uh, they need the money to do something. Uh, they, they save up for their daughter's wedding. They, they want to retire comfortably. So it's really about lifestyle. And, uh, and like Fitbits have been able to uh, simplify uh, personal physical well-being, we believe that robots have the opportunity to simplify personal financial well-being. Are you, uh, when you're referring to robos, actually you're not really referring to robo robots because that's us trying to personalise it, isn't it? It's a computer program, it's a computer algorithm, that's, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. So you I'm, won't I'm, see uh, a physical robot in, a, in an advisor office. I'm story here. <laughs> um, no, it, it is, really comes down to algorithms. Yes. And, uh, and, and we, we strongly believe that um, algorithms are, are able to solve based on the inputs and the needs and the, and the objectives of the client uh, uh, to, to ensure that they organize their assets. And, and what you're goals. talking about is, in effect, the financial planning section as opposed to just purely the investment portfolio, mm. although it will do both, right? That's correct, yeah. So what you see in the U.S. is often very investment-centric, uh, and that's quite logical given that market. Uh, but robots can be a lot more than that, and algorithms can, can And help so us. for the robo-advisor, robo what you're referring to is someone, not someone, but a, a machine that will organize in accordance with a set of ideals and someone to organize. I, I understand and I get the Fitbit idea because uh, although I don't have a Fitbit, I'm waving my empty w wrist here. <laughs> we'll at have you. to change that, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that people do want their lives organized a bit better these days because they're used to having everything else organized. Is that, is that where it's coming from? That's right. Yeah, if you look at Fitbits, uh, over 30 million units have been shipped uh, last year in wearable uh, computing devices. So uh, there's a strong underlying demand for, uh, for uh, tools that will help them simplify their lives. And, and we believe that robo-advisor, whether standalone or supporting the advisor, uh, we'll, we'll be able to do so. So, Jerome, can you give us an example? I mean, I think a lot of uh, our listeners and just people in general here in Hong Kong will, will confuse, you know, investment advice with financial planning. You know, there's overlap, but, you know, um, 
Can you give us an example of um, how this robo can actually help, you know, person A achieve their financial goals um, just with this financial planning model? Sure. Yeah, there's three simple steps. The first one is to help the client identify their goals. So indeed, that comes down to you need a lump sum to pay for a wedding at a certain point in time. You need a series of lump sums to pay for your kid's education or you might need an income stream uh, to support your lifestyle in retirement. Once you know those liabilities, you can start organizing the assets that the person has in according to those liabilities. Um, and, and clearly, robots are, uh, are smart enough and algorithms are smart enough to calculate what tax structures, what, uh, what, what assets are most conducive to achieving short, medium and long-term goals like that. That really is going to hopefully um, give you a bit more insight into what they could do. And is this you know, kind of advice something that Hong Kongers don't get presently? Yes, at the moment, uh, yeah, if you take the assumption that most people would benefit from financial advice, and there's a lot of research that shows that um, people are twice more likely to achieve their financial objectives if they receive professional advice, then only about uh, 20 to 30 percent of, uh, of people that need advice currently get advice. So there's a huge market out there uh, for uh, uh, these types of propositions to uh, create more access. Is this going to supplement the basic training that financial advisors have, or, or will it work alongside it or replace it? Yeah, good question. It could be either. Uh, it could replace it, and we've seen some examples internationally of a, of a standalone solution, uh, fully digital, uh, and literally you go through your mobile phone or your iPad or, or online. Uh, but I think the more powerful way for robots to be used is to augment the advisor rather than replace it, uh, because we, humans are... Uh, inconsistent uh, by the very nature of us. Psychopaths, according to Robert. That's right. Yeah. Um, so uh, so uh, robots can really help uh, mm-hmm. make humans better advisors. So, so how do we do this? How do we go find out about uh, robo-advice, you know, if this is something that uh, uh, the investor wants to do? Um, oh, well, look, uh, clearly there, there's not many solutions out there here in Asia at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of solutions out there already in the US and the UK and coming into Australia as well. Um, so yeah, the best way to find out about them is to uh, possibly give us a call, and and we, we can we can we can talk you through that. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for joining us this morning. That is uh, Jeron Bualda, and he is the Asia Pacific Wealth and Asset Management Advisory Leader at EY. All right, a quick look at the numbers before we close up the show. The Nikkei is now down four-tenth of a percent to 19,829. Australia's ASX index is uh, up just slightly, 0.03% to 5,917. And Seoul's Kospi also up 0.04% to 2,112. Gold is currently valued at $1,192 per ounce and Brent crude oils stands at $58.76. Well, we have uh, China data due out uh, later today. Stuart, what else should we be keeping an eye on? Well, obviously, psychopaths in your fund management industry and uh, robots at the advisory end. Uh, Those those were made clear. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think markets have done so well over the last few weeks in in the Asian market, particularly China. Um, We should just uh, probably expect a little bit of a pullback at some point. But um, this this is a run that's going to last for a little bit longer, in my view. All right. Thank you for joining us this morning, Stuart. And uh, every Wednesday morning as co-host, that's Stuart.
Stuart Altcroft, uh, Chairman of City Trust. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today will be fine, very dry during the day. The temperature right now is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 62%. Time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. President Obama is to remove Cuba from a list of state sponsors of terrorism, a key step towards normalizing relations between Washington and Havana. Last week, the Cuban president, Raul Castro, met Mr. Obama and demanded his country's removal. Here's the BBC's John Sopel. The removal from the state sponsor of terrorism list has long been demanded by the Cubans. And after a series of reports written by various interested US government departments, the president has made his decision. It'll pave the way for the reopening of the US embassy in Havana and the Cuban embassy in Washington. As such, this is a major step towards normalising relations between the two countries. In his letter to Congress, President Obama says the government of Cuba has not provided any support for international terrorism during the past six months. And the letter goes on, the government of Cuba has provided assurances that it will not support acts of international terrorism in the future. Hillary Clinton has said she'll work hard for every vote as she embarks on her campaign for the Democratic Party nomination for the U.S. presidency. Two days after announcing her candidacy, Mrs. Clinton began a tour of the state of Iowa, where she was heavily defeated the last time she ran in 2008. She met students and teachers in the small town of Monticello. We need to build the economy of tomorrow, not yesterday. We need to strengthen families and communities because that's where it all starts. We need to fix our dysfunctional political system and get unaccountable 